I'm going to ask you this morning to open your Bibles to First um, John chapter one, as we continue in our study of First John. First John chapter one. Last week we opened up our study into First John. And we saw that the Apostle of John was writing to the churches in Asia, and he's writing to the churches in Asia, quite frankly, to defend the faith. Defend the faith. The faith had come under attack. It actually had come under attack by a lot of different things. The primary objective is First John is that he's dealing with the issue of the early beginnings of Gnosticism. Gnosticism, right? From the Greek word, uh, gnosis, knowledge, right? And what the Gnostics believed is they believed in a higher ascendant knowledge. They believed that in order to know Christ, you needed to have this mystical, super-duper spiritual experience, right? But they also did something that was pretty significant, or they believed something that was pretty significant, and that was they believed that... Oops, let me just do this here. I'm sorry. There we go. I'm sorry. But they believed in, in that all matter was inherently evil. Now, what's matter? Matter is anything you can touch and feel that has substance. So it could be a piece of wood. It could be a rock. But more importantly, it's a body, right? We incorporate a body. This body is made of, of matter. And they believed that all matter was inherently evil. Now, you'd say, okay, oh, I, I might be able to deal with that. What's the issue with that? Well, the issue with that is that Jesus Christ could never be a man. And if Christ couldn't be a man, there, there could be no atonement for sin. So they invented these fanciful things, these fanciful thoughts. One of the thoughts was that Jesus Christ, although he was a spirit, right? Jesus Christ took over the body of another person, you know, what we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And he inhabited that body and went about teaching. And then before the crucifixion, he vacated that body, right? So in essence, Christ did not die as a man. He did not die for sins. And then in order to know God, right, you have to rise to this place of this mystical experience. You know, there's a lot of groups out there today that's saying in order to know God, you have to have this experience or you need to have that experience, which is evident that the Holy Spirit is upon you. And listen, there could be no salvation if the Holy Spirit, if you never had the Holy Spirit because it is the Holy Spirit who draws. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts. It is the Holy Spirit that sanctifies. So no Holy Spirit, no salvation. Well, the Gnostics were doing very much the same thing. They were saying the only way you can know God is if you have this mystical experience. But John saw the danger. You see, they were blending a little bit of Christianity with a little bit of paganism and a little bit of heresy. John saw the danger. The danger was this, if Christ did not die, there is no salvation. And so John writes this epistle of 1 John to the churches in Asia. I, mean, I shared with you the, the timing around this is about 91 to 95 AD, right? John is in Ephesus at the time of this writing. And, and, and John is very direct and John is very specific in terms of the message he wants to get across to the church. And this is the message. You have a pure gospel. Don't be defrauded. Don't let someone con you with some other kind of gospel. Church, very few churches do. But there still is a pure gospel. Do not be defrauded. Don't be faked out by some other gospel that's coming along. So as we approach this, right, God, we're going to take a look at the objective truth of the gospel. The gospel is truth. It's a, every Christian needs to understand that. The gospel is indeed truth. Jesus' final prayer, his high priestly prayer, John 17, he says what? Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth, Lord. 
We have the word of truth. So we want to look at John's defense, his objective view of the gospel as truth. And I made a statement last week too. I said, as we study this, we want to study this from the inside out. If you might recall, I shared with you a little bit that we have a tendency to study Scripture from the outside in. What does that look like? The outside in is, what is in this for me? What do I learn from this? What can I take away from this? I'm not saying that's bad, right? But the tendency tends to be me. How do I grow? But I'm really begging, and the Lord really put this on my heart. I'm really begging you, let's look at the Scripture from the inside out. And from the inside out, it looks like this. Where is God glorified in this? Where is Christ glorified in? Where is the glory of the gospel? Where do we have those moments where our jaws drop and we just fall in awe and splendor? of who God is. And I believe, with all of my heart, I believe this. I believe if we take that approach to the gospel, then everything we need for application, everything we need for ourselves, will come cascading down upon us because of the glory of God. Right? So as we jump into this, let's do this. Last week, we saw verses 1 through 4, what we, uh, and I'll read through it. It says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld, uh, and our hands handle concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that your joy may be made complete. One of the things, I, I, the points I wanted to make to you last week is look at how many times John reiterates the things that we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld, and handled with our hands. In verse 2, he writes, and the life was manifested. He goes on to say, we proclaim that life. Right then and there, John testifies, the very things I heard, the very things I saw from Jesus, I heard from Jesus, the very person that we fellowshiped with for three years, that we touched, we handled him, we helped him, we worked alongside of him, these things I proclaim to you. And at the onset of this epistle, he immediately jumps in to defend the personhood of Christ. If Christ was a phantom, if Christ was a ghost, if Christ was a specter, well, he couldn't have been handled with the hands. He couldn't have been heard and seen and all the others right away he's establishing if you look at verse four uh, verse three he said what we have seen heard we proclaim to you also that you may have fellowship with us another and i'm going to talk about that word fellowship and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son jesus christ he's writing to the church this is he's opening as a matter of fact this is the true gospel. This is the real gospel. And we're going to see as we jump in a little bit further from here. So as we look today at verses 5 through 7, there's a few things that we're going to point out. Number one, he's going to give us what the conditions are for fellowship. And he's going to put a standard. He's going to put a test before us in verses 5 and 6. Then he's going to show us those who walk in darkness the unbelievers. He's going to define the unbelievers, those who walk in darkness. I'm going, to, I'm going to say something to you. I think I mentioned this to you last week. John is very direct. The son of thunder. Not the effeminate John that the Middle Ages painters used to paint. But John, the son of thunder, who with his brother, when they left Samaria, said to Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon them? That's John. And as he writes this epistle, he is very, very direct. 
He's going to use a lot of direct imagery. Children of light versus children of darkness. Light, darkness, right? He's going to use this kind of imagery. So we're going to see what is the standard, and God is the standard, the conditions for fellowship. We're going to see those who walk in darkness, the unbelievers, and he's going to qualify it. And we're going to see those who walk in light, the believers, all in these next three verses. So we saw verses 1 through 4. Let's read verses 5 through 7. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. And so here in the following verses, verses 5 through 7, John is going to give us a test. He's going to develop a standard, or he has developed a standard, the standard for the believer. And how do we know? The question that he's going to answer is, how do we know if we're in the faith? Boy, that's the question. Everybody, how do you know if you're really saved? How do you know you're saved and I'm not? How do you, you know, these are the questions that are very pertinent for our times right now, right? Faithful pastors and faithful teachers must proclaim truth. And John, being a faithful elder and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and by the way, at the time of this writing, the only remaining apostle of the Lord that was alive. He watched all his buddies be martyred for the faith of Jesus Christ. And John gives us a few things for us to take a note of. Number one, the Word of God is the measuring tool. That's what we measure all things by, the Word of God. It's not, and let me say this, sincerity. How many times do you hear somebody say, well, they're sincere. The only thing that matters is if you're sincere. Hey, I say this time and time again. You could be sincere, and you could be sincerely wrong. You know, when Hitler rose to prominence in Germany, right, and even though he suspended the constitution of the nation, even though he abolished the rights of parliament, even though he proclaimed himself as the Fuhrer, the dictator, here's the truth of the matter. Most of the people believed in him. Most of the German people supported him. Now, after they saw what happened, They may have had a change of heart, but in the beginning, they were sincere. They thought he was going to be a a, a real help to Germany, and they were sincerely wrong, right? So the litmus test for the believer is not sincerity. The test for the believer is the standard of the Word of God, right? Because the Bible tells us that the Word of God is good for reproof, for rebuke, for instruction in righteousness, that the man or woman of God would be adequately equipped for every good work. It is the Word of God. And so what we see here is that right away from the beginning, we see here that the Word of God is going to be the standard. Now, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was leaving Ephesus, And he was, this is a segue, by the way. I didn't segue that right, okay? In Acts chapter 20, when Paul was leaving Ephesus, he was heading back to Jerusalem, right? And the brothers and sisters said, don't go to Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem, you're a dead man. They're waiting for you, they're going to kill you. And in Acts chapter 20, look at what Paul says in verses 28 through 30. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. He says this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Now this he's instructing to the elders of the church, the one who have gathered there. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know 
that after my departure, savage wolves will come. And they're going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise um, men who will speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And this literally came true. Remember Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, right? Hey, you do all these great things, but this I have against you. You have lost your first love. And the same thing is happening in our nation today. People are adding to the gospel saying that certain things are the gospel that are in fact not the gospel. Why? Because savage wolves, they come in and they just taint a little. Just a little. If you're not anchored on the word of God, you're like a boat that's not anchored at sea. That when the tide comes in and rolls out, the boat's going to go and come with the tide. And it's never going to be moored to the dock. Listen, there's always the real and there's always the counterfeit. The greatest con artist is the person who sells the lie to be reality. That's the greatest con artist, right? Pure doctrine, there'll always be pure doctrine, there'll always be false doctrine. Take a look at our own city. And the garbage that is being spewed out of these monolithic churches that Orlando is famous for. There's always going to be the pure and the impure. And as Paul warned the church there at Ephesus, stand guard, be ready, oversee the flock. John warns the churches of Asia 35 years later. Beware. Look at verse 5. And this is the message we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Listen, John continues the reiteration of the truth. Once again, we hear the words regarding the message of the gospel, and John qualifies it again. This is the message that we have heard, and we have proclaimed it to you. John, an eyewitness. John, a man who had three years of personal, intimate fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, James, and John, the early founders of the early church who stood upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the gospel that there is no other salvation in any other. This is what he proclaims. He reiterates this once again in verse 5. And he makes this statement. It's a specific message. He makes this statement. God is light. God is light. And so the question is, what does John mean when he refers to God as light? God use, uh, John uses this term in his gospel, in the gospel of John. He describes Jesus in John 1, verses 4 through 5. He says this, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. In John 3, verses 19 through 20, he says this. This is Jesus speaking, and this is judgment, that light came into the world, and men love darkness rather than they love light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. There is this reciprocal relationship between light and life. Here Jesus in John 12, spoken at the Feast of Lights, when Jesus stands up in the middle and he says, again, Jesus therefore spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of light. James calls God the Father of lights, in whom there is no variableness, there's no shifting. 
And even in the Old Testament, we see this contrast between light and life. Psalm 36, 5, For thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we see light. Psalm 119, 105, you probably should know this. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a what? And a light unto my path. We see through the scriptures that light and life are are intimately linked. Light is, and I want you to know this, light is the knowledge, and I want you to qualify this, the experiential knowledge of God's divine truth. That's what light is. And it is that truth that brings life. See, the light comes, it illuminates the divine illumination, and it is that light that brings life into the sinner's life through Jesus Christ. Light is divine illumination. That opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. Now, if that's light, what's darkness? It's got to be the exact opposite. Darkness has to be the blindness. Darkness has to be that spiritual blindness, that closed heart to the light of Christ. Those who walk in darkness are not saved. And and John is going to make this point very clear, very shortly. Those who walk in darkness are not saved. The deeds of darkness are manifest, such as the deeds of life and light are manifest. And John is going to use this as a test. He's going to test the heart, the center of emotion, the center of will, the center of personality, right, in the next few verses. And he's going to test those who profess Christ versus those who possess Christ. He's going to draw a very clear distinction between the the two. John's statement that God is light and in, in Him there is no darkness, listen, it speaks to the purity of God. We know this, don't we? God is holy. God's holiness is 100%. It's not 99.9 like ivory soap. It's 100%. God's holiness is pure. God's holiness is just. God's holiness is righteousness, perfect and complete. God is not marred nor corrupted by any imperfection whatsoever, no matter how minute it might be. When we talk about this, let's read the scriptures from the inside out. As we look at God's holiness, look in your Bibles at Exodus 15, 11. Exodus 15, 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee? Majestic in holiness. Awesome in praises. Working wonders. Stop for a moment. With everything that you know of Christ, with everything you know of the Word of God, with whatever theology you may have acquired in your life, how often do you stop and think, my God is awesome in praises. My God is majestic in holiness. A few weeks ago, we went, we, 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 we did Isaiah chapter 6, and we saw the scene in the throne room as the angels were going back and forth, crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And they're crying out, and the temple is shaking, and there is Isaiah the prophet, and he goes, woe is me, I'm a man undone, I'm broken at the seams, I'm broken apart. The awesome revelation of the holiness of God, and here's a bulletin, God has never changed. He has never changed. If the glory of God filled this room and descended into this place, we would be face down on the floor. 
sharing the same sentiment that Isaiah the prophet said, Woe is me, I'm a man undone. This is the God in whom we serve. This is the God who John is sharing to the churches in Asia. This is the God that we proclaim in 2022. Look at Psalm 99.9. Psalm 99.9. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill. For holy is the Lord our God. I mentioned Isaiah 6.3 when he saw the holiness and he heard the seraphim crying out to one another, saying, Holy, 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 holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And I love this verse in particular, Revelation 4.8. Revelation 4.8. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, all full of eyes around and within, and day and night, listen to this, day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. I believe when I preached on Isaiah chapter 6, I said to you, notice the angels didn't say, Love, love, love. God is love. His love is unceasable, unceasing. Notice they didn't say, God is wisdom, wisdom, wisdom of all the attributes of God that get declared in the realm of heaven is His holiness. God is holy. God is light. And both are pure. Absolutely pure. What God hath created is good. And through salvation that is offered through Jesus Christ, God has brought holiness upon his people. He has rescued all who put their faith and trust in Christ Jesus from the depravity of our sin. I like to say many times, God rescued me from me. And you know why I like to say that? Because I know just how jacked up I am. God intercepted me. I was headed south when God intercepted me. And now he put me on a course of due north, straight north to the glory of heaven and the eternal kingdom. God's salvation wasn't marred by sin. It wasn't marred by imperfection. But instead it took my sin and it took my imperfection and it gave me Christ's righteousness. And Christ's righteousness is holy, pure, glorious. That when God would look upon the saved, no matter how despicable that person may have been, no matter how heinous the sins that person may have committed, no matter how rebellious nor no matter how long they stood in rebellion against God, when God looks at the saved, He sees that perfect righteousness of Christ. Holy, pure, and perfect. Remember the Lord's words? I said remember. Remember the Lord's words in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. And everybody looks at that and everybody goes, well, how can I be pure in heart? How can I be pure in heart? You know, I have evil thoughts. I have sinful thoughts. I never work. A, I don't go a day without sinning. I don't work any, you know, I can't go a day without sinning or saying something stupid or whatever. How in the world can I be pure in heart? And Christ says, come unto me, all you that labor. You're striving for that perfection. You're striving in yourself for righteousness you can never attain. Come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll lead you into that promised land. 
I'll take you. I'll bring you. And it will be my righteousness that will make you pure in heart. And when you are pure in heart, guess what? You're going to see God. You're going to see God. If you are a believer in Christ, if you've been born again, if you reflect God's nature, God's light, and His light is reflected in righteousness of Christ. This is why we preach that you must be born again. You must come to Christ in repentance and faith. There is no other way. You will exhaust yourself in deeds of righteousness that will ultimately fail if you do not come to Christ in faith and repentance. This is the message that John is preaching in this epistle, that God is light and in him there is no darkness. Now here comes the standard as we look at those. He's going to define those who walk in darkness. Who walks in darkness? This is the unbeliever. Who walks in darkness? Look at verse 6. And if we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Look at this. I want to call your attention to something right there because I want to call your attention to the word fellowship. That's the Greek word, koinonia. You may have heard this time and time again, koinonia. It does not mean social gathering. You hear time and time in the church, we need to have more fellowship. And what people are really saying is we need to have more time of social gathering. But that's not what the word koinonia means. The word koinonia means a partnership what we have as a partnership. And the, part, the partnership is based on common belief. Common belief. So we have a partnership. We have a partnership with who? We have a partnership with Christ. Because we're sharing the common belief. And the common belief is built upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Believers enter a genuine, a genuine union, a genuine fellowship with Christ, with God Almighty, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, Paul writes this, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son. There it is. There's the koinonia. We're in partnership now with Christ. We're in a common belief system with Christ. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul says this, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. There it is, the koinonia, the partnership. By the way, if we're in partnership with Christ because it's predicated on a common belief, then if you are in Christ and I am in Christ, we have partnership with one another because we are predicated upon Christ. We are predicated upon that common belief, which is why the church of Jesus Christ is one. It's one for all who are in that same belief system. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul puts it very, very, very clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, Verses 4 and 5. He says there's one body. There's one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father. Of all. Who is over all. And through all. And in all. Now. I know my sister's here, and that particular verse resonates with my sister as it does with me, because in 1930, when my grandfather started a church in Brooklyn, in New York, that was, I don't even know, that's the verse of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. But that describes the koinonia, the fellowship that we have with one another. 
Here in verse 6, note the difference of what John says a person says and the difference between how a person walks. John's point here is that if a person says that they are in communion, they are in fellowship with God, they are in mutual partnership with God, walking in God's righteousness, walking in the obedience of God, supposedly changed by the grace of God and the forgiveness that is in Christ, born again. But notice what he says. But if they continue to walk, and we're going to look at that word, if they continue to walk in the deeds of darkness, then they lie. They lie. John says here, if we say, notice that word, circle that word, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk, circle that word, in darkness, circle that word, we lie. And the truth is not in us. He's contrasting between what a person says versus how a person lives. You know, I think there's been a mischaracterization over the years in the churches, in the evangelical churches, where we have tried very hard to say, look, as believers, we do not subscribe to sinless perfection. We all sin. John's going to address that. If we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. But we went so far, so, so far, that we say, well, you know, it doesn't matter how you live. Nobody knows. God knows my heart. You know, it doesn't, you know that brother could have been, you know, they made a profession of faith. And, you know, they're saying, nowhere in the Bible does it say we're saved by what we say. I want to I make that point again. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we're saved by merely what we say. Oh, Romans 9, Romans 10, 9 and 10. If we confess with the mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe on the heart, thou shalt be saved. But you've got to read 9 and 10 and the rest of Romans to get the full context of what Paul is speaking about there. We're not saved because we said a prayer. We're not saved because of something we profess. The manifest presence of God by being born again will be born out in every believer. And it will become evident. Notice John saying the very same thing here. If we say we have fellowship him, but we walk, there's a contrast. Right there is the contrast. If we walk in sin, something is inherently wrong. And we're going to look in the next verse of what that means to walk. Matter of fact, let's go right now to verse 7. By the way, just one point back to verse 6. We talked about in verse 5 that he said, God is light. And in God there is no variableness. Right? So in light, there can't be darkness. Right? God's light is God's holiness, his, his divine illumination. It's pure, it's perfect and complete. In darkness, none of those things exist. As a matter of fact, if you're in absolute, total darkness, there is no light. If you went into a cave in the center of the earth where there's absolutely no light, you're in total darkness. I remember where we used to live in New York up in the country before we moved to Florida. I remember when we lived up in New York, we were away from the city. And when you would have a moonless night, you know, I always like to pull the shades. I like that, right? To go to sleep. I can remember many times I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. That's how dark it was. There was no light. Nothing was coming through. Look at verse 7. And remember, all of this is contextually flowing from verse 1. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. By the way, this is one of my 
Here, here we go. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's one of those verses that when the enemy reminds me of my past, reminds me of my sin, I take out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and I quote this verse. This verse is so rich in its context and in its meaning. It is so broad. But I use that verse to slay the fear and the doubt and the uncertainty of the enemy. There are two key words in here. We saw them in verse 6. We're going to see them in verse 7 that I want to call your attention to so that you get a robust meaning of what this verse is saying. Number one, the first word is if. And the second word is walk. Notice here he says, but if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light. Now you'll see in your English New Testaments that if can have two different definitions. One definition is conditional, which is what we're going to use here. It's a conditional conjunction. What it basically is going to say is, if this exists, if point A is true, then point B is true. So it poses a condition. There's another way if is used in the Greek, and it's used as since, right? So, since this is true, that's not how it's being used here. This is a conditional conjunction. It's joining two separate verses. So, it's joining what he said in verse 6, if we say, and that's the word in verse 6 too, if we say we have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and the truth is not in us. There's the first premise. The first premise is, If we say something that we don't live, then the truth is not in us. Here in verse 7 comes the second premise. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Which brings us to the second word, which is walk. Very, very important in 1 John that you get this. If we walk. And to walk, the Greek word is peripateo. And it really means to to comprehensively walk around. That's what it really means. But in the language of Scripture, it means to perpetuate within. You're walking. You have a certain cadence. You're going. You're walking. You're continually. So notice what he says here. He said, if we walk in the light, there goes the premise, right? I'm going to postulate this. If we walk in the light, as not as we say, but notice what he says, as he himself, who's himself? Christ, as he himself is in the light. So if we walk in that light, if we're perpetuating in that light, and that light is according to the manner of Christ, according to the gospel, then the second part of this is going to be true. What's the second part of this? The second part of this is We have fellowship with one another. We have koinonia with one another. We have partnership based upon a common belief. Partnership based upon a a common set of values. If these things are true, then as believers, we have fellowship with one another. How important is this? How important is this? The world is full of people today that I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And for the most part to the world, that means you're not a Muslim, you're not a Jew, you're not a Hindu, you're not a Buddhist. So by default, you must be a Westerner or you must be some kind of Christian. John makes very clear that's not a Christian. 
The Gnostics were coming into the church and the Gnostics were saying, we're Christians, we have the truth. Matter of fact, we have a more ascendant truth. We have a higher gospel. The Judaizers were coming into the truth and saying, we have a better gospel. You see, it's, it's the gospel of grace plus the law of Moses plus the dietary habits. We have a better gospel. There are people today saying, We have a better gospel. It's social justice. We have a better gospel. It's this, it's that. We have a much better gospel. That's not the gospel. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to sell you another gospel. This is really critical. We use these things. John uses this. Remember what he said in verses 1 through 3. Listen, the gospel that I'm telling you, it's the very gospel that I heard from Jesus. It's the very things I saw from Jesus. What did he see from Jesus? Oh my goodness. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind. He saw Jesus open the ears of the deaf. He saw Jesus heal uh, crippled blind Bartimaeus at the side of the road, the son of Timaeus. He saw Jesus walk walk upon the water. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was revealed in all of his glory. He saw Jesus, you know, do just about every miracle, every demon. He was there at the tomb of Lazarus when the door opened up and the stench of decomposition came out. And when he called forth, Lazarus, come out, and he saw him come out. He was there with Lazarus, with Jesus, when they walked into Jerusalem and all the people were saying, Glory, glory, Hosanna is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He was there in Gethsemane praying when they came to arrest him. He was there at the cross of Calvary with his mother, the only disciple. He was there when Jesus rose from the dead. He ran with Peter and John and and he stooped outside the tomb. And the Bible says, and John believed. He was there when Jesus came into the room just supernaturally came into the room and said, come on, hey, boys, how you doing? Come on. You don't believe? Come up here. Stick your finger in there. Come on. You don't believe? Come on. Put it right in there. He was there when they were out fishing, and the Lord was on the shore and said, cast the net on the other side, and and there goes Peter, who I think is a lot like me. Oh, I've been fishing all night. I'm a professional fisherman. I think I know how to catch fish. But at your bidding, Lord, I'll cast the net on the other side. He was there when Jesus made breakfast on the side of the beach. He was there when he said to Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And there goes old Peter, good old Peter. He said, you know, when you were young, you went wherever you want, but now when you're old, you're going to go someplace you don't want to know, don't want to go. And Peter said, well, what about him? And he points to John. I could only see John go right back at you, brother. (laughs) What he had seen, what he had heard, what he had handled, what they beheld with their hands, it is this gospel that he proclaimed. And let me tell you something, John was there on the day of Pentecost when that same fumbling failure of Peter gets up and he preaches the gospel. And what does he preach? He preaches the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He preaches that there's salvation in no other. And they repent. And John was there when the Spirit of God fell upon the apostles and it was so amazing and so thunderous and he heard the rushing wind and the cloven tongues of fire and he saw it all. And you know what John said? I'm going to preach this gospel till I die. You know what John did? He preached the gospel until he died. And this is the gospel that he is proclaiming to the churches in Ephesus. Notice the second part of this verse. We know the first part is true. If we walk. Notice the difference between verse 6 and verse 7. Verse 6 begins, If we say, 
But notice verse 7. If we walk, if we live in that truth, if we perpetuate that truth, as Christ walked, then we have fellowship, koinonia with one another. You know one of my favorite things about this church? Absolutely one of my favorite things about this church is the koinonia that I experience with you. We're going to come before the table of the Lord in a few moments. We're going to come before the table of the Lord. We're going to have koinonia. Partnership and a common belief. It's beautiful. When I get to speak to you on the phone or we have, like we had at the picnic or we have at some the fellowship, the koinonia. It's not the social gathering. I, you know, Barbara will tell you she's not here, but, uh, you know, for the most part, I, I'm kind of an aloof type of guy. Right? But when I come into the church and I have the fellowship with one another, that transcends my ignorant personality. Look at the second part of verse 7. We have this fellowship. But notice what else. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son. If you don't give me an amen on this one, something's inherently wrong. But the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from, and I want you to circle the next word, and I want you to circle it, and I want you to put stars on it. He cleanses us from all sin. All sin. He doesn't cleanse us from the big sins. He doesn't cleanse us from the little sins. He doesn't cleanse us from the medium sins. He doesn't cleanse us only from the violations of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't cleanse us from any of How does the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse us? He cleanses us from all sin. All sin. Do you know how many times, as I shared with you earlier, do you know how many times that the enemy will come against me? Maybe I've made a blunder. Maybe I sinned. Maybe I said something stupid to someone. Maybe I just acted out in the flesh and really made a disaster of my life. And do you know how many times that the enemy will come upon me and say, you're no believer. Where's your, where's your Christ now? All those people you preaching to in the church and you talking that way, you did this that way, you're thinking that way. Remember what you did? I've told you, I've been honest with you. There's no shortage of people who could walk into this church and say, that's your pastor? Let me tell you something about your pastor. Let me tell you some of the things we did together. No shortage of people. And you know what? You're looking at me, but you know there's no shortage of people about you too as well. But what happened? The blood of Jesus Christ cleansed me from all sin. All. What was the worst thing you ever did? What was the worst thing you ever did that only you know? Maybe the other person isn't here. Maybe it didn't involve another person. What was the worst thing you ever thought that you still struggled to to this very day? How can Christ forgive me for this? How can he forgive me? But the word of God boldly declares that if you are in Christ, if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Man, let me tell you something. I, 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 I don't, that does not get old to me. That doesn't get old. I need to hear that every day. I need to be reminded every day. When the devil reminds me of my failures, the word of God reminds me of Christ's sufficient salvation, the efficacious, all-cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that washes me white as snow. And this isn't new to the New Testament. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, 
they shall be white as snow. Though your sins be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. And you know what blows my mind about that verse, Isaiah 118? It's not that he takes the red and he makes it white. Is that that same holy God in Isaiah chapter 6 that the angels never cease to cry holy, holy, holy would come to his people and say let's reason together. Let's reason together. Let me tell you something. There's nothing. Well, the Apostle Paul says it best in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am not condemned. I was condemned. I sat underneath the wrath of God. I sat under God's justice. I was destined for hell until Christ intercepted my life. Now you know why the Apostle John with a passion and a fervency writes this epistle to the churches in Asia. So what's the big deal? So what? What's the big whoop? A.W. tells you guys know I'm a big fan. Wrote these words in his book, The Dangers of a Shallow Faith. He says, any wrong idea of God is bound to give us the wrong idea of ourselves. We can know ourselves only as we know God. If we are wrong about God, we will never know who, what, or why we are where we are. He goes on to say, if a man is wrong about God, he is bound to be wrong about himself. How true. In these opening verses, we have seen the Apostle John defend the personhood of Jesus Christ and to begin to defend the true and living gospel. Listen, it's very, very simple. I want to make this point. We have built this church upon the word of God. When you come on Sunday, we sing the word of God, we declare the word of God, we preach the word of God, every answer we give is from the word of God, and then we do it again on Tuesday. And we come and we verse by verse go through the Word of God. Why? So that every person would be adequately equipped with the gospel. The Apostle John is defining the standard of what it means to be in Christ. What it means to be a believer. And his intent is very much like my intent. Let there be no ambiguity. The Apostle Paul said something very similar in Colossians 2.8. You want to turn there. Colossians 2.8. And with this we'll close. He said this. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. There's some great wording in there. We don't have time to process it all. But this is the only time in the Scriptures you see that word, philosophy. It means love of wisdom. Right? Notice what he says. He says, don't let anybody take you captive through philosophy, the love of wisdom. Empty deception, giving you an empty bag when they're trying to tell you that the bag is full of riches. According to the tradition of men. 
And he adds a term there, according to the elementary principles of the world. That, that term in the Greek, the elementary principles of the world, could be interpreted as the ABCs. You know, when you're teaching a child, the ABCs, or you're, you're teaching them to count one, two, three, four. It's something that is sequential, something that is basic. He says, don't be deceived by all these things. Don't be taken captive. Notice the term, taken captive. You're a prisoner of those things. Rather than according to Christ. He goes on in verse 9 to says, For in him all the deity of fullness dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. Listen, it is the job of the heretic to take you captive. And the way they do it is integrating error with truth. It starts out as 99.9% truth and one 100% error. And then eventually it goes to 99% truth, 90% truth, and you're lost. Today, the church is confronted with everything from redefining sexuality, social justice, politics, pragmatism, marketing, and so much more. This is what Paul calls the elementary principles of the world. And they're, de they're designed to deceive because a gospel that's not 100% Pure is not the gospel. You can only contend for God if you know God. And as I always say, it doesn't mean knowing about God. It means that epikonosis, that intimate, personal knowledge of God. Is your faith such that you walk in the light as he is in the light? Do you have fellowship? Do you have the koinonia with Christ? Do you have the koinonia with the others in the church? Has the blood of Jesus Christ cleansed you from all sin? Listen, we're going to come before the table of the Lord. The table of the Lord is strictly for those whom have been cleansed by, from all sin. The table of the Lord is strictly for those who have that koinonia with Christ and with the other believers in the church. If not, listen, it's real simple. Cry out to God and say, God, save me a sinner. Confess your sins unto the Lord, each and every one of them that you could possibly think of. Cry out to God to mercy. I was having a conversation with Brother Fred. I said, Brother Fred, when I got saved, I said, God, save me or I'm going to die. Those were the words that I uttered. God save me or I'm going to die. One or the other. Cry to Jesus. Christ took your penalty and became a curse for you. He hung on the cross. He bore your sin and your shame. He was buried. He physically died. And he physically died rose again on the third day. 500 people saw the risen Christ. 40 days later, before his disciples, he ascended into the Father to sit at the right hand of the Father. And as the men were still marveling, as the hundred or so people were there were marveling, the angel said, why do you stand there looking? This same Christ, the way he went up, he's going to come back. Guess what? He's coming back. And guess what? It's going to be a lot faster than you think. And guess what? Every eye shall see him. 
And every believer on the way to heaven is going to be wiping the tears off their face saying, I've waited for this day all my life. And praise God, God's word is true. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord, because your word is indeed true. We can be anchored. We can be immovable on this word. So, Father, prepare our hearts now as we go before the table of the Lord. Right now, Lord, if anyone has any unconfessed sin in their life, Maybe there's someone here today, Lord, who said, you know, I don't know that Jesus. That, Father, you would open their eyes with that light, that divine illumination. and Save their souls, oh God. And, Lord, maybe there's some here that are your children that have said, Father, I have not given you the honor the glory. I've been living loosely, Lord. Father, forgive my sin and cleanse me from all sin. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.